Welcome to the Ecobot Podcast, where we dive into what matters most for 21st century wetland scientists and continue in our journey in respect to the convergence of technology and wetland science. I'm Jeremy Shavey, your host, and on today's episode, we'll talk about some of the unique challenges wetland scientists face, both in the office and in the field, and how we can leverage technology to improve workflow strategies and data management. In this episode, I will be discussing my professional wetland and technology journey, and we will be introduced to a few software solutions currently being utilized by other professional wetland scientists. Let's jump in. I want to start with this quote from 19th century English Quaker and writer William Pollard. I believe that we are in a critical moment, not only in our lives, but in history. We're at a significant nexus. While most of the rest of the world is just now waking up to the fact that in the 21st century, we are still a part of biology and we're still connected to the earth, that we as scientists have a really vital role in helping to interpolate and ascend biological data to bring a voice to the voiceless and put that into a location where that can be received because otherwise humanity is most likely going to continue to divorce itself from the very ship that sustains us, our Earth. And I also believe that we can help shape the future while maintaining our scientific integrity, uh, continuing to promulgate conservation, preservation, long-term ecosystem research and management, and also to sync that with intelligent, responsible planning and growth. Our climate is changing. An invitation to you all, can we adapt? So this is what we're going to talk about in the next 25 minutes or so. We're going to look very briefly at my road so you can get an idea of where this, this whole concept came from. Talk about the importance of digitizing data. Then we're going to jump directly into some of our case studies that we're, we're going to be looking at today. And then we're going to look at the importance of workflow in the marriage of technology and wetland science. And then finally, just what's some of the near future of where wetland science and tech may be going. And so here I just wanted to show just a very brief touch in to my own history. So when I, when I came out of school, I started working with the University of North Carolina at the Highlands Biological Station. The station there for two years, we did a lot of work with endangered species propagation, air, uh, natural areas management, and then doing inventories. I got into the consulting field uh, back in my home city of Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, with environmental quality management, worked there for two years, wetlands, t e ecological restoration, uh, and then started my own company, Unica Environmental. Uh, Unica is a, a Cherokee word for these mountains that we live in here in the Southern Appalachian Mountains, where I continued in that vein of working with threatened and endangered species with various restoration projects, as well as a lot of large-scale wetlands assessments. And during that time, I also was invited to sit on the board for the Cloud Forest Conservation Initiative, where we have helped to protect 40,000 contiguous acres of primordial cloud forest in the highlands of Guatemala. So now that's protected in perpetuity. That's a volunteer gig that I'm involved with. Anybody ever wants to come down for a bio blitz, we usually get down in March. 
So it was about a year and a half ago that I launched Ecobot with my co-founder, Lee Lance. And that kind of brings us to where we are today, taking all of this as science and launching someone who's very biocentric, I'm the eco, uh, into a, a, a technologically driven portion of the world too. So convergence of wetland science and tech. It really speaks volumes as to what the importance of our role as scientists is in terms of digitizing data. It's critical to understand that in the microclimate of each of our individual lives or perhaps in our organizations that we work with, it's easy to become fiercely independent and to remain so. But one of the things I love about our community is the ability to collaborate across organizations, across companies. You see that in the very panel that we have today. We have a lot of people who have worked together, a lot of people that have been in one moment in a competitive edge with one another, yet at the same time still have the capability of coming back to working together. I love our community. And there's one thing that I've learned through those collaborations, both in working with wetland scientists and natural resource scientists to collaborate on larger efforts, but also with something such as the cloud forest that it takes a team of people of multiple different angles and looking at a particular potential problem or an area that needs some discovery to be able to tease out a better solution that's gonna be a, a conglomerate of everyone's viewpoints. I think that it's really crucial to understand that our responsibility, I believe, is to translate our biological and the abiological observations from the field into a digital format because right now the world is moving in that direction. COVID-19 has projected that further along the path. What is happening is if something does not show up in a digital format somewhere, it's not going to have a voice in policy. It's not gonna have a voice in decision-making. It's not gonna have a voice in our human counsel, if you will. So I feel like it's really important for us to take a look at how we're digitizing our data and bringing that up into a place. So looking at digitizing data from a macro scale, how does digitization of data allow us to look at macro scale planning, whether it's statewide, nationwide, global, looking at how to be more prepared for climate change, for shifts in storm and weather patterns. For those of you who live on the coast, this is very alive for you. For those of us who grew up or live in floodplains, it's very alive for us. How can we track and plan and implement things from that macro scale perspective, but then also the importance of the micro scale, like looking at our specific projects, our specific watersheds or the specific, specific preserves or conservation areas that you are involved in protecting or promulgating the long-term integrity of so that we still have these gems on our planet and in our communities that we can interact with and learn from. And so it's really important from that micro scale, from even just you as a scientist observing in the field, what you're collecting, taking that data and putting it up into a format that other people can see who maybe they can't get out to that site. Maybe they don't have the time to get out to the site. Really critical at this time in the game. So let's go ahead and take a dive in here. So this is what I thought tech and wetlands was supposed to look like. I grew up in the Star Wars era, of course. I thought that I needed an R2 unit to follow me around and do all the calculations. 
my co-founder reminded me that the computer I had in my pocket, which I didn't even know was a computer, my smartphone was actually more powerful than the computer that NASA used to land units on the moon. Uh, is fascinating to me. And what are most people using it for? Sending each other text messages and little goofy images. Like here we have these amazing powerful tools in our pockets, ready to go. And so believe that it's really important that we utilize the tools that we have in this convergence of wetland science and tech to morph with what is happening in the time so that we can make better observations, process model data better, and access that data and thus influence natural resource management, planning, policy, etc. And so today we're going to take a look at and hear from some of our panelists as well how drones, GPS receivers, GIS software, data collection apps, and other tech is shaping our industry, but also is being shaped by our industry. So let's take a look at our, at our first group, so drones. So again, remembering that we're gonna be talking about this from a top level and we're gonna go deeper into these conversations, drones. I still call them drones. I know most people are calling, you know, like the new term is, you know, UAV, unmanned aerial vehicle. It's still a drone that's easier for me to say and it makes more sense. And, you know, many companies, including Daniel Wenham's company, who's on our panel today, they are offering drones as a service to minimize the level of effort, the level of cost that it takes to monitor wetlands, to monitor impacts, to monitor assessments of wetlands. With drones, essentially there's three types. There's the winged type that look like airplanes. You've got your quadcopters, which I'm most familiar with. And then there's also the old school version of using balloons and blimps. And I know some people still use those. I remember at the SWS conference this past year, someone had made a presentation of all these tiles they put together from a balloon. It was awesome. But essentially what drones allow for is controllable access to high resolution optics, photos, near infrared, thermal sensoring, LIDAR data, being able to look at what you have in the field. So let's let's take a look at the case study that I'm going to look at. So all of these case studies that I'm going to present to you are specific to projects that I've been involved with because that is what I can speak to most confidently. So again, we'll jump into these more with future webinars. But so I'm most familiar with the DJI Phantom SR6. I own one of those. That's we have that as part of the Cloud Forest Conservation Initiative. For this particular project, we are using it to do aerial imagery to look at potential impacts to the edges of this primordial cloud forest to see where the actual extent of the old growth forest is. I'm not sure if you all can see my, my arrow when I'm moving that around, but in the lower picture you can see in the upper right corner, you can see where the impacts of some milpa style farming are, where they do the burns and growing corn, beans, etc. And so we have really enjoyed the utilization of this. And so again, we will dive deeper into this in the near future, but this is one that I can speak highly for. GPS receivers. Most people in this industry are already using some type of GPS receivers, but just like smartphones, they change every few months, every few years, and there's always new things coming up. I have been mostly in the space of using like a lot of the Geo 7000 series with Trimble for a lot of the wetland delineations and natural resource studies, stream assessments that I have been involved with. With GPS receivers, I think the most important thing to keep in mind from the top level is you essentially have four grades of receivers. You've got your military, government grade, 
then you've got your survey grade, then you have your mapping grade, and then you have your consumer recreation grade, and you have varying levels of accuracy from supposedly sub centimeter for government and military down to the consumer grade being 20 to 30 meter accuracy. However, one of the new waves of what we're exploring now in this industry and what I've been able to play with a lot are GPS receivers that are paired to smartphones. And so that's what we're gonna look at as a case study today. So I've been using the Tremble R1 for about a year and a half out in the field. There's no interface. The interface has to pair via Bluetooth to a piece of hardware. So I pair it to my iPhone. So I've got the receiver paired to my phone and then the data is actually importing into Ecobot so that I can present that data as such. I've been getting fairly, fairly good accuracy with the, uh, with the R1, pretty excited about it. It's supposed to get sub-meter accuracy. I'm usually getting, if I've got pretty good satellite coverage, usually getting 10 centimeters to a half a, a, half a meter. If I haven't checked up on my GNSS input, sometimes it can be a little off by, you know, like five to 10 meters, which is still pretty accurate. Still learning how to refine that. And so I think Darren's gonna give us an opportunity to take a look at that later on in the panel discussion. GIS software. GIS software has revolutionized our ability to portray a story, to be able to convey data that's on the ground macro scale or even just project specific scale and then distribute that or disseminate that to tell a very simple story that can be conveyed very quickly. I know that Megan Lang from US Fish and Wildlife Service is talking about how she used to just send out paper maps to everyone. That was a part of what National Wetland Inventory used to be to where it is now where we get fairly granular data. And so I have been over the years have been using ArcMap Prior to that, I was using USGS maps that I would Xerox in and then Sharpie in my project area. I'm sure some of you have been around long enough to have done that as well. About a year and a half migrated over to ArcGIS Pro. Really enjoy working with ArcGIS Pro. I've, it took me a little bit of time to ramp up, kind of learning the new toolbox, if you will. But once I was comfortable with the toolbox, it takes me a matter of minutes, what used to take me several hours, you know, and scale that to a project. Hours might be a small project like this where you're talking about 40 or 60 acres versus, you know, 4,000 acre project, which might take days, you know, slimming that down. So really looking at major efficiency gains there as well. Now next, of course, you know, is, is data collection apps as well as other field applications, things that you can uh, utilize in the field for helping with plant identification, things like that. And the main thing with data collection apps is that there's varying types. You've got your consumer grade versus professional grade. So consumer grade might be something that may even have some peer support in it, such as like iNaturalist, but it's still very consumer-based versus something like Ecobot, which is very specifically tailored to a scientific workflow. And then there's also the difference between off-the-shelf software versus custom software. So off-the-shelf software would be something where you can kind of formulate your own utilization, something like Fulcrum or Survey123, or something that you can do that is more uh, custom-built, such as uh, Wetform or Ecobot, et cetera. Smartphones are already in our pockets. Everyone's carrying them in the field. It just makes sense. 
to continue to collect data in this way to create some more of that efficiency. So specific case study with Ecobyte, I think without getting too far into the details in the interest of time, just looking at the maximum amount of time savings that can be created by using something like this that allows for such a high automation of calculations and taking all of the observations that you have collected in the field and then putting them into a compiled report and then having the integration with Esri software in order to map and project that. So let's take a look at some of the new tools coming up, some of the things that I'm pretty excited about and I know some of the other more macro scale interested folks are getting excited about is some of the machine learning and, and AI tools that are starting to become available for monitoring wetlands, monitoring potential impacts over time, um, and also doing some modeling based on that uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence. And again, looking at how, you know, what's the difference between augmenting a scientist's existing workflow and then what adds on to or what can reduce and create more efficiency. So our first case study that I want to look at here, uh, we, have, we have Jessica Norris representing Upstream. This is a project where we're looking at a large-scale mitigation area, looking at making sure that things are in compliance, making sure that in terms of vegetative cover, in terms of where water is pooling on a given site and being able to model that. So pretty excited about where some of this stuff is going. The next case study is actually an up and coming case study that uh, some of us on this call are hoping to jump in and do a case study collaboratively this summer. There's a new tool for that called the Munsell Capture, which is purportedly designed to be able to give us our readings for our, our soil colors. I'm not sure that it'll work just because of the complication, especially when you're dealing with modeled soils and glade soils, reduced soils, but we'll see what happens. I'm excited to kind of play with it. Otherwise, I don't mind still using the cards, but just again, kind of giving you a prompt of where some things are coming from the tech side. It remains to see whether this makes sense for us as scientists to utilize as well. Again, very top level, what, we're, what we touched into here, we'll be launching into more of that because we want to focus on our, our amazing panel that we have here today. But now that we've reviewed some of these top level technologies that are starting to become core to wetland science, at this point I think it's really important to understand, for me, it's very important to understand the relationship of why it's important to build this tech from inside of the industry and not from someone creating it from outside and then force feeding it to us. I think there's nothing more than I personally can find disconcerting than to have outside an outsider telling insiders what and how to do something, whether it is planners, including stakeholders in conservation projects, or if it's policymakers denouncing scientific facts, um, or if it's technocrats force feeding us software or hardware that does not sync in with our current workflow, is it just going to add more to what we're doing? So let's take a look at like one example of how workflow of wetland delineations works out. So again, technology should make, should make our jobs easier. We want to try to force fit that plus sign through the triangle 
we want our scope of work not to become more complicated, but to become easier, more efficient, more effective in the telling of a story, in the telling of, uh, in the translation of scientific and uh, planning information into a form that is going to be audible to lay people. So, you know, it's really critical, especially for those of us that are still working in the field, that we have tools that allow us to work offline. We don't always have a data connection when we're out in the field. And it's also really critical to have that integration of mapping and modeling and lookup tools built into it. The main thing that I feel like is important about the way we're doing this webinar, the way we're setting up this panel, the way we work as scientific organizations from the nonprofit side to the for-profit side is that we listen. We listen to what is needed, what is being asked for from our peers. And that we take that in, in mind as we're shaping and building and creating things, whether it's tools or policy or new teams for taking on new challenges or solutions. You know, we can't just charge ahead and expect everyone to get in line, like really thinking about the ecosystem that we exist in as scientists. So one thing I'm excited from, from the Ecobot platform is to announce that as of today, we're releasing to the App Store our version two, which is going to have all of the uh, our integration, our first level of integration with Esri's mapping tools that will work offline, available to all of our customers and partners. And so, very excited for that. And so, you can get that on the uh, the, app, the App Store. So, just to wrap this up, where's this all going? Are our jobs, are our livelihoods at risk? But no, our jobs have become even more important at this point in the game. It's our jobs to interpret patterns, biological, abiological data, and to convert that into digital formats that we can make better decisions going forward. It's not, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, when the next pandemic comes or when the next major policy comes, such as changes to the waters of the United States rules. So my last, my last slide here is just to talk a little bit about you know, where things might be going. This is a World War II era cipher machine. This was used to send codes back and forth by the US and allies during World War II. And so one of the things that's also really critical in this, at this point in the game, wetland science and technology, is that we don't get so far ahead that a lot of the organizations that we're serving in helping to maintain the very laws that help to sustain our natural resources, that they would fall behind and not be able to. So right now, we create this great level of efficiency. Some of these organizations are looking to ways in the near future to be on their side, to actually be on the other side of that cipher machine, to receive that raw data, and then turn it into something digital that they can utilize as well. So that efficiency can be retained or gained by our government as well. Thank you for listening to the Ecobot podcast. On the next episode, we'll hear from our panel of professional wetland scientists about their experience with integrating technology into their workflow. If you like what you heard, take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. If you'd like to learn more about how Ecobot is helping transform the industry and see what we can do to help your company, you can find us at www.ecobotapp.com. And we'll see you next time.